Hello and welcome everybody to our third and final lecture about uh, the pre-Civil War stuff. This one's just called Eruption. This one's just called Eruption. We're talking all the things that you that happened before the Civil War really gets going, just shortly there before it really kind of explodes. When it really explodes. Everything else has been building pressure. That's one thing I want you to realize about the Civil War is that there's definitely a sense of contingency, like maybe it will happen, maybe it won't happen, but like a pressure cooker or something, things just start escalating very quickly, and then it just erupts. The Civil War erupts, and, and I want you to realize uh, the plight of African Americans is all about the Civil War. Um, yeah, there's a lot of things going on uh, about African Americans, not even slaves, just African Americans in general that really do cause a civil war. So go ahead, open up your PowerPoint. You're gonna see a picture out there of Margaret Garner. We're gonna talk about this a little bit later. Margaret Garner's one of the more famous runaway slave cases. Basically her husband and her four kids were uh, trying to flee across the frozen Ohio River to get to Ohio, which was a free territory, which as we said last lecture, it was free, but may not have been the best for African-Americans. Anyway, she was trying to escape from her slave masters. Uh, basically some marshals were chasing them um, basically her husband, you know, shot and wounded one of the officers, which doesn't look good for her. And because she was about to be captured and she didn't want her children to go back into slavery, um, her, she slit the throat of her daughter and was about to kill her, uh, sons before she got arrested. And basically the idea being that she would be willing to, you know, kill her daughter rather than let her daughter go back into slavery. Uh, that, you know, <laughs> Nobody just starts out like that. I mean, there's a lot of things that complicate, a lot of things that really um, expound upon each other to get to the point where that is seen as a, you know, a case that is not, uh, I don't want to say it's, it's a bit unusual for the brutality of a, of a mother killing their young daughter, but still, it, it, it's something that definitely comes about. Now, why does it happen? Well, part of it has to do with the, the, the lure of the West. If you go over one more slide, you'll see the lure of the West. Um, a lot of Americans want to go west in this time. A lot of Americans want to go further west. I mean, because of Texas, because of uh, the, the, the beating Mexico in the Mexican War, we have California. There's all sorts of new territory. Looks pretty good. A lot of very fertile land, good for agriculture. Places like, uh, you know, Nebraska and Kansas. I know those don't sound very western now, but they're, they're considered west from back then. A lot of good land for agriculture. And even in the far west, California's got exceptionally good land. Uh, the Oregon Territory, the Washington Territory. And so, uh, for instance, uh, a lot of people try to go over there, black and white. All sorts of people want to go over there. And a lot of black people are in that number. A lot of black people are in the number. They want to go west. There's plenty of fertile land. Uh, the federal government is giving it for free, pretty much with homesteading. Uh, there is problems of exclusion, though. Um, the primo example is Oregon. Uh, the Oregon Territory, later the state of Oregon, uh, forbids black settlement, period. Uh, pretty much it says black residents, if they come, they have to be whipped every six months until they left, like a public whipping and flogging um, to keep black people out of Oregon. Now, this is not slavery. Uh, Oregon is very much a free state. Uh, there are no slaves in Oregon. Black slaves do not exist in Oregon. They just don't want black people, period. They fear that black people are going to... Uh, mess with the price of labor. Uh, it, it's almost like a, supposed to be a white utopia. And I bet you're wondering, oh my God, that's an old law. I'm glad the Civil War happened. This law was on the books in Oregon until the 1920s. Um, yeah, I'll repeat that. Like, a hundred years ago, barely a hundred years ago, that law saying every black resident in Oregon has to be whipped every six months was definitely still on the books. So I know you've heard me say this a gazillion times over the course of this class, but I'll say it once again. Just because people were anti-slavery does not mean they're pro-black. I think the state of Oregon is probably the primo example. This, ball, this law is on the books until the 1920s. Um, Oregon, outside of Portland, is a fairly white state. Uh, just the, the Pacific Northwest in general is very white. Um... Yeah, I wouldn't say people in Oregon are racist nowadays, of course, but I would say that that's kind of part of the legacy of a law like that. You know, uh, the idea that, you know, we don't want black people, period, in the state, not because of slavery, but because, honestly, we don't want the economic competition. 
Because most Americans do not agree about equality between the races. If you go over one more slide, you'll see free labor versus slave labor. Uh, most, most white Americans, they don't believe in the equality between the races. They think that white people are superior um, over African Americans, of course, over black people, over Native Americans, over the Chinese. So you got Chinese people coming around this time period. But they do kind of differ about whether slavery or not should be allowed to spread to new territories. These Western territories, a lot of them are free states. They're free labor. Basically, free labor means not enslaved labor. Um, you still get paid under free label, but like you're your own man. You're your own individual. You can work for your own wages. And free labor becomes very popular in most of these Western states. Pretty much all of these Western states... In fact, I'm not even. I'm gonna. I'm gonna drop the caveat of the pretty much. All these far western states, your California. Sorry, I should say territories. They're not states yet, but all these far western territories, your Californias, your Oregon's, your um, your Washingtons, your Idaho's, your Montana's, your Dakota Territory, uh, your Utah's, your Nevadas, your you know New Mexico and Arizona territories. They are not welcoming slavery. They don't want slaves mainly because they don't want the economic competition. Free labor is great, but it cannot compete under any circumstances with slave labor. Um, slave labor just blows free labor out of the water from a cost position. I mean, that sounds horrible because slavery is horrible. I'm not denying slavery is horrible. It's the worst. But if you just go in a purely economic standpoint, you could see why the people who are in favor of slavery uh, support it in this time period because it's quote-unquote, you know, it's labor you don't have to pay for. You know, if, if it's if it's a free labor state, uh, you're going to have to pay your workers. But if it's a slave state, you don't have to pay your workers. You bought them. You have their worker, your work effort forever. You have their working lives forever. And so the fear is in a lot of these deep Western territories that if a little bit of slavery was allowed to come in, it would destroy the territory. It would like ruin it economically. Uh, white people could not compete against slave labor. And so that's really the reason why you have the Wilmot Provo Proviso. Uh, one of the things you've probably heard about the Wilmot Proviso, uh, this is one of those things, it's one of those escalating things, just another one of the dominoes that makes the Civil War happen. We're going to be talking about a lot of falling dominoes. So this is one of the, the West is kind of the, 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 the basis domino, but the Wilmot Proviso really is pretty much trying to, he's a, he's a congressman. Wilmot is a um, congressman from Pennsylvania. And basically, he wants the lands acquired from Mexico to be exclusively white. All right, that's the key word there. He wants the territories um, that were obtained by Mexico, so Texas, uh, the Arizona, New Mexico, California is the big one. California is the big one. That's what everybody cares about is California. Uh, wants it to remain exclusively white. So no slaves, but also no free black people. <laughs> that's that's something that uh, doesn't really. <laughs> when you if you learned about this in high school you, or middle school, you probably just heard, oh, he didn't want slavery. No, he didn't want black people. Period. Uh, none whatsoever. Uh, however, people really just latched onto the slavery thing because this law in of itself makes a lot of slave masters very mad. Um, it kind of affirms every bad conspiracy they've ever whispered about about how the federal government is trying to screw over the slaveholders. You know, the federal government hates the slaveholders uh, because they fear their power or their wealth or influence or whatever. And now they seem to have had every conspiracy theory they've ever had verified, where the federal government is like, you know, they, they're actively trying to conspire against um, slaveholders. Not even conspire, just be open. Just like, hey, we need to get rid of this. Um, slave masters, they, they feel that it's trying to get rid of slavery, mess with their power. And, and a lot of these slave masters say that slavery is good because it helps black folks, quote, make them more adult. It's like, you know, uh, African-Americans are too childlike. They're, they're just like a, they're like a child race. Uh, we, we will help them grow up. We, we teach them things, but we don't let them read. And we teach them Christianity, mainly just the book of Philemon. And, you know, in time, they could advance more to become an equal part. But they're not really talking about equality time since. What you need to know about the Proviso, the Wilmot Proviso, is that it never passes. It never passes, period. Um, it's too much of a controversy. It does spur some political action, most notably the uh, formation of the Free Soil Party. 
Uh, the Free Soil Party comes about in 1848. Um, it really wants to get rid of slavery expansion. Uh, the, the Free Soil Party is adamant. We don't want slavery. And some free black people support that part. Some abolitionists support that part. But then most members of the Free Soil Party, not all, but most, also say, and BT dubs, we don't want black people around either. Uh, for the same thing like Oregon said, we don't feel that we could compete with black labor, even if it's uh, free labor, even if they're not enslaved. They feel that black people would be willing to work for less money. It's going to take down the price of labor. Uh, think like we talked about last lecture about the uh, Irish immigrants you know, causing a lot of the race riots in places like Philadelphia. That's the thing. So even though the Free Soil Party is the, you know, the second major political party, actually it's a much bigger party than the Liberty Party, um, it, it later, members of it later become the Republican Party, uh, the Free Soil Party, I should say, uh, they're still not keen on, uh, on black people. Uh, they're very much not in favor of black people. Now, the will on Provalso also kind of scares everybody because they're like, look, you know, we want things to settle in time. We want things to go slowly. Uh, they expect the United States to keep growing at a kind of slow pace, you know, going from states that already border it, you know, like, you know, we're going to go from Texas to New Mexico or from, you know, uh, Nebraska to maybe the Kansas Territory, things like that. Settle it in time, a very slow expansion, not going to the far west yet. Well, that gets screwed over because what happens in 1849? Because in 1849, California has a gold rush. California has a gold rush in California, and everybody goes. Everybody comes to California. A lot of white folks, but also some like European immigrants. Um, Asian folks start coming over. In fact, this is when some of the first Chinese come over to California. Uh, before the gold rush, there were seven Chinese people in California. Uh, after the, uh, Just four years later, in 1852... Uh, you have several thousand black, uh, not black people, uh, Chinese people in California. But also you have black people. Everybody wants to come to get rich in California. It's gold. Uh, you know, play, place for mining, it, it's kind of hard to make money doing that. That's where you just kind of like, you've seen the old movies where they have the old prospector, you know, sifting, uh, sifting the little sill over the water. Um, it's very hard to make good money doing that. Uh, yes, you might get lucky and get a nugget every once in a while, but by and large, you need much more um, fancy equipment to get that done, which most people don't have, uh, period, let alone African-Americans. And by the way, the people who come over to do this are what's called 49ers. Um, 49ers are the ones who, the, these kind of prospectors, uh, who rush into California. Now, even though most of these 49ers don't really get that rich, by 1850, so just one year later, uh, because of the gold rush, California all of a sudden has a population of 100,000. And 100,000 is the magic number you need for a territory to apply for statehood. And this scares the crippity crap out of everybody because this is way quicker than anybody expected. I mean, California borders the Pacific Ocean. They weren't expecting California to go for a statehood. They weren't expecting the population to get that high for decades. And then all of a sudden, seemingly within a year, because of a gold rush, California has 100,000 people. California applies as a free state. California, if you don't know, is a very large landmass. And also, California, if you don't know has some primo, uh, I've mentioned it a million times, California has some of the best farmland in the entire world, uh, let alone the United States. Uh, California has some of the best agriculture you can have. Any, <laughs> Pretty much a lot of the food you eat does come from California. California is a massive agricultural state, very fertile areas. It's just very, you know, good weather. Everybody loves California. But especially agriculturally, California's way up there. And I guess the slave masters and the white southerners expected, because it's going to be a very agricultural area, it's going to be a very slave area. Or at least the southern part of it. They're like, you know, the Missouri Compromise line, you know, we'll take the southern half, we'll take SoCal, and we're going to have all sorts of slavery up in there. But this happens quick before anybody can figure out what's going on, and all of a sudden California is asking for statehood. Now, a lot of white Southerners, as I said, they refuse to consider it unless they say slavery is going to be allowed because they know California is like the future of the United States. 
they know California is going to be a major agricultural center. I mean, yes, the gold rush gets a population there, but they know the fertility of California. And they're like, we need to make something happen. What ends up happening is the Compromise of 1850 by Henry Clay. Henry Clay is uh, Henry Clay is up there with uh, Daniel Webster. Actually, I'd say Henry Clay is higher. Of like most important political figures in American history, never be president. Everybody thought Clay was going to become president one day. Um, no, he, he he was not. He was not. Uh, Henry Clay, however, he makes the Compromise of 1850. Basically, this is a great political compromise because nobody's happy. Um, basically, it says, hey, California gets to enter as a free state, which the Northerners are going to like, but to help the Southerners, we're going to have a much stronger fugitive slave law. A way stronger fugitive slave law. We're basically saying if fugitive slaves, you know, if they run away across state lines, um, masters can, you know, go over. Uh, basically, basically, what it's basically saying is the rights of property and property rights are higher than... Um, state sovereignty. I'll, I'll repeat that because it's kind of a it's a weird concept. But the Fugitive Slave Act says basically if a state passes a law that everybody there is free and like you know if you go there you are free. The Fugitive Slave Act is basically saying uh, unless they are somebody's property and even though if it's in another state, the person's property is high, uh, the the property rights the rights for property are considered higher than a state sovereignty. Uh, it was kind of in the background. It becomes much more pronounced later. Now, President Taylor, uh, Zachary Taylor, he is a... Actually, he's the only president who's been elected from Louisiana. He was not originally from Louisiana. He was living in Louisiana whenever he, uh, whenever he became president. He was actually living in Baton Rouge, close to the old... Close to the new state capitol. You can go to the new state capitol and see the site where his uh, house was. Uh, he famously did not pay the telegraph uh, charges to, whenever he got... Uh, was elected president. He was like, yeah, I don't want to read that. He, he was not too keen about being president. Uh, Pre Taylor himself, he is a Southerner. He is a, you know, he is a slave person. However, he's like, you know what? We don't need this. We don't need to compromise. You know, the, the slave stuff, uh, he, he gets kind of interesting once he's president. He says, look, I'm going to veto this law, this compromise. California can enter as a free state in general. Uh, probably the reason that had to do is because Zachary Taylor was a he hero of the Mexican War. In fact, he was the main general in the Mexican War. And so I guess maybe it was just a legacy thing for him because he's like, look, I want California to be like my state. It's going to be great. It's going to be wonderful. Uh, Taylor is threatening to veto it. He never actually vetoes it, though, because uh, Zachary Taylor dies. <laughs> Zachary Taylor dies. Uh, his vice president, Millard Fillmore, uh, basically got the parts of it passed as separate bills. Two separate bills, basically allowing California to come in as a free state and also strengthening this fugitive slave law. Uh, as like any good compromise, nobody is happy about it. Nobody is happy about it. Um, that's any good compromise. And it does show things are starting to come to a boil and that maybe slavery might not be able to exist within the United States. If you see the map on the next page, you're going to see California and all the different territories. Yep, yeah, that's Compromise of 1850. Now, fugitive slave laws are, you know, they're, they're never very popular. Uh, the laws make all sorts of people mad. Um, nobody's really satisfied with those issues. There have been several. I mean, the earlier fugitive slave law was in, eight, uh, was in sorry, 1793, uh, it does permit the recovery of escaped slaves, but really, Northern resistance, it was never really, like, pushed by the federal government. The federal government is not, like, you know, being very insistent about it. The federal government is just like, yeah, you know, you shouldn't allow that to do that. Also, personal liberty laws, um, you know, they, basically the rights of an individual to be free were considered higher than property right laws or state sovereignty. Uh, basically, the state officials were not obliged to help in the recovery. So, like, if you went over to a free state, let's say you went from, uh, I don't know, yeah, I'm trying to think of one that borders each other. Let's say you made it from Virginia to Pennsylvania. That's a horrible example because Pennsylvania has slaves. Whatever. But let's pretend that Pennsylvania was free and it somehow bordered Virginia, which I don't think it really does. You know what? That's a horrible example. Let's go Kentucky and Ohio. I know that's, that they definitely border each other and one's free, one's slave. Uh, basically, if you go over into Ohio... Um, you know, the Ohio 
officials aren't really obligated to like help find fugitive slaves. That changed under the Fugitive Slave Law of 1850. Uh, pretty much the Fugitive Slave Law of 1850 says, hey, <laughs> if, if, if there's a runaway slave from another state in your state, you have to help them. Even if it is a free territory or a free, a free state, doesn't matter that the rights of the slaveholder are greater than anything else. And basically, to put it plainly, private property trumps states' rights. And that's a real question, because once you start saying private property trumps states' rights, you get into a really, really, really weird legal area where um, it can be very easy to abuse. Um, those slaves who were caught under this new law were returned to slavery. In the old times, maybe they're like, eh, we're not going to try too hard to find your master, that sort of thing. The new future of slave law, it made you go back to your master. And what kind of ends up because of this law is that all of a sudden, northerners, like free black people, um, are now accused of being slaves, or being runaway slaves, where beforehand they didn't really have to prove their status. I mean, the future of slave law existed, but nobody really enforced it too strongly. Now, even if you're a free black person, like living in a very free area, you could be terrified because you could be captured by a slave catcher and sold and back into slavery. Back into slavery. You might not have ever been in slavery. Um, I'm sure you've seen uh, 12 Years a Slave. That's exactly what happens to Solomon Northrup. He's a free man. He gets captured and he gets sold. And there's really nothing he can do to prove it otherwise. Likewise, it gets rid of a lot of constitutional protections for black people. Slave and free. Uh, you know, questions like, you know, are you a citizen or not? Uh, you know, because they weren't saying that uh, these individuals were uh, citizens of the United States, but they could be citizens of the individual state. It's still kind of a squeaky area. Also, uh, the Constitution really says if you're accused of a crime, you are um, innocent until proven guilty. All of a sudden now, it's like if you're black, you're presumed to be a runaway slave and until you can prove your innocence. So what happens, like I said, is a lot of passages of the laws really cause otherwise normal black folks like really have to prove their status. Uh, some of these different ones who do that, uh, for instance, Ellen and William Craft, they're pretty interesting ones. Uh, they were slaves in Georgia. They were slaves in Georgia. They were trying to escape to an otherwise, slave, uh, otherwise uh, safe state. They try to go further up north. The slave catchers found them there. Uh, they, they end up trying to pose as a white man and his slave to go through it. Basically, um, he claims that his, he is his wife's master. He's of mixed race. Uh, he's a mulatto or octoroon or something, so he can, he can pass as white. Uh, eventually, they do lead for England. And the next questions arise about who is the federal government protecting? Like, is it protecting the rights of the property holder, or is it the state's rights or an individual's right to do what he wants? Uh, another case is Shadrach Minkins. Uh, basically, he's, spurned, he's basically brought together by a group of black men who are free, bringing him to freedom. Uh, he goes to Canada. He does not stick around the United States. Uh, basically, he's like, you know what? This new law has made it so unsafe that even though I'm a free person, I'm not hanging out around here. Another one is the Battle of Christiana. Uh, Battle of Christianita, basically a vigilante group of black and white uh, they are protecting runaways from the slave catchers. And basically what ends up happening is some armed black and white people who are basically trying to protect a runaway slave end up killing a slave master. Uh, Millard Fillmore sends the Marines to try to get them, you know, arrested. Uh, the men are acquitted, though. The, the men are acquitted of these charges and the charges are dropped. Uh, really shows the limit of federal power and control right here. Uh, basically, you know the the rights of the uh, of the individual state to like basically I don't the state did not want to enforce this. Uh, they claim that basically the the vigilante band felt threatened by the slave master who was basically trying to uh, do harm to one of their number who was a runaway slave. Uh, yes, they get arrested for this because they do kill somebody, but the charges were dropped because it said it's self defense. So even though the federal government is really trying to push um, states to you know capture slaves. You see that there's a limit to federal power. Uh, the federal government is not especially powerful. Also, a big caveat, this is in Pennsylvania. All right, this is in Pennsylvania, a state which doesn't have the highest number of slaves and also has like a long Quaker shaker tradition. Uh, another one is Anthony Burns. Anthony Burns is a fugitive slave 
that is recaptured. And this one is just bad optics. This one is just bad optics. Super bad optics here. Uh, basically, he is... This is one of the biggest cases uh, that ends up happening. Anthony Burns is in Boston. Uh, he was a fugitive slave. He gets recaptured. And basically, abolition groups uh, storm the courthouse. Once you know, We talked about last class how abolition is getting a lot more aggressive, a lot more violent. This is one of those ch- times where it happens. Uh, a, a U.S. marshal is killed, so a federal official is killed. Uh, to do this, basically, uh, several hundred troops are sent by Franklin Pierce, uh, the new president of the United States, to recapture Burns. Uh, several hundred slave catchers and federal troops get him, so pretty much... They're using so many resources. They're using tons of resources to capture one man. Like, the optics are just like, wow, the federal government is wasting tons of money. Uh, this really galvanizes support. Uh, basically, what ends up happening is a group of abolitionists buy Burns. They're like, look, we're going to buy him. We're going to compensate him. Uh, he, he, he's bought, and he in, eventually goes to um, Ontario, which we mentioned last class, Black Canada. He's like, I'm leaving the U.S. This sucks. Like, the damage was already done. The U.S. looks soulless. The federal government, I mean, just imagine the optics. Hundreds of troops after one dude. They send hundreds of troops after one guy. This really galvanizes support for abolition group movements. Uh, this is one of the more famous cases. Uh, the one we talked about earlier was Margaret Garner. Uh, she was the one who basically was running across the Ohio River from Kentucky uh, before she gets arrested. Well, yeah, basically when they know the troops are closing in on her, uh, she kills her own daughter. She kills her own daughter, and basically she was disarmed before she could kill her sons. Uh, if you ever read the Toni Morrison novel Beloved, that's kind of the basis of this. And her case was often highlighted as like... Um, What's the word I'm looking for? How just dehumanizing slavery could be. Where somebody's willing to kill their own child, slit their own baby daughter's throat, so that they don't have to go back into slavery. How de... How really bad must it be? As I mentioned, most of these people do go to places like Canada, uh, Ontario, Toronto area. Some of them do come back after the Civil War, though, mainly because there's better opportunities in the U.S. following the Civil War. Uh, not before the Civil War. It's still pretty awful, and you have to, like, you know, prove that you're not a slave. And if even if you are a free black person, you could still be arrested and uh, put into slavery. Uh, however, a lot of these people who do go to Canada do come back to the U.S., mainly for economic opportunities. Um, Ontario, uh, Toronto in this time period doesn't have the best ec- economy, uh, but it was safe. It was safe. But after slavery is outlawed, a lot of them do come back. Not all of them, because there's still a pretty high black population, even to this day in Toronto, but... That's where it comes from. So what does end up happening is that black folks start realizing, hey, maybe we should figure out how to protest or stay strong in light of a federal government that's really more committed to state uh, to slave owners' property rights than things like natural rights. You know, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, that sort of crap. Um, I'm not saying that life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness are crap. I'm just saying that sort of stuff, shall we say. So basically, like, hey, the federal government, you know, beforehand, they really wouldn't chase too hard when somebody went over into a free state. You know, it's a, it was viewed as a waste of resources. Now the federal government is very, very interested in doing this. And also, I should mention, um, a lot of these people are not really crazy about immigrations. Uh, even Black folks are also against immigration. They think that basically... If we have a large immigrant population, that's going to further increase marginalization and racism within the United States uh, because these immigrants are going to take what limited opportunities black people had. Uh, to help out with that, uh, Frederick Douglass, who's a part of the Rochester Convention in 1853, uh, calls for more unity amongst all black people. He wants vocational training. He's like, hey, if we can get trained in better jobs, maybe we can have a stronger economic position. Uh, they also claimed that they were citizens. That was still a question. Is, is a black person a citizen of the United States? They could be citizens of individual states, but federal citizens, it was a different story altogether. Now, black folks are not the only people who are afraid of immigrants. Because uh, 
white folks, uh, they call themselves Native Americans in this time period, but they're not Native Americans like we know them nowadays. But the idea of, you know, white folks whose families have been in the America for a couple of generations, uh, they're afraid of all these new immigrants, um, mainly Catholic immigrants. Uh, the potato famine had happened. The potato famine had happened, and all of a sudden you have all these Irish immigrants coming in. All these Irish immigrants are coming in, uh, lowering the price of labor. They're work, willing to work cheaper. Also, you have a lot of German immigrants coming in. Um, there's a ton of German immigrants. In fact, even to this day, the most common country of origin for a U.S. citizen is German ancestry. Uh, this really... That was a painting that just fell down. I'm okay. Uh, just scared me a little bit. Hopefully it didn't scare you. <laughs> uh, there's a really fe big fear of a big Catholic conspiracy amongst a lot of these different white Protestant groups. Um, basically, they think it's a foreign invasion for a lot of different reasons, uh, mainly economic. I cannot iterate how much of anti-immigrant thought is mainly uh, fear of economic competition. But with Catholicism, you have the extra benefit, quote-unquote, of the fear that the Pope might be, um, you know, conspiring against you. Uh, that's something that never really goes away in some circles. There are some circles who are quite afraid of Catholics. There are some attacks on various Catholic churches and stuff like that. Uh, this really res results in the Know Nothing Party. Uh, the Know Nothing Party, uh, it's one of these things that really springs up kind of often in U.S. history. Uh, these type of anti-immigrant, America for Americans type of parties. Um, you know, not we're not keen on immigrants, traditional American values, that sort of thing. Uh, had limited political success uh, before the Civil War. It did have northern and southern factions uh, kind of split on the issue of slavery. It could be considered a predecessor to the Second Clan. Uh, the Second Clan we're going to talk about, that comes about in the 1920s, but that kind of very nativist, uh, America for Americans, anti-immigrant political party, it, it springs up all the time. And the Know Nothing Party could be seen as a variation of that. Uh, the Second Clan is very different than the First Clan. We're going to talk about the first, we're going to talk about all the clans in this class. Uh, that's going to be after the Civil War. Now, another thing that comes out is a little book called Uncle Tom's Cabin. Uncle Tom's Cabin is a book by a woman named Harriet Beecher Stowe. Now, Beecher is um, her, her maiden name. Uh, that means she is religious royalty. Uh, the Beecher family is some of the most famous pastors in all of America. Um, her brother is a big-time pastor who, if this is a different class, I'll talk much more about him, but well, we're running out of time, so... Uh, she comes from religious royalty. She writes a book called Uncle Tom's Cabin that sensationalizes the crippity crap out of slavery. Um, it, she her, her research is pretty much going to one uh, plantation for an afternoon. She does some other reading as well, but her only first-hand experience is one book, uh, one afternoon. Uh, it is very frank in its depiction of the brutality and inhumanity of slavery, uh, the titular Uncle Tom is a slave who is kind of a Christ-like figure. He seems a very religious, pious man who is just brutalized by his slave masters. Uh, there's even a scene in there which is very similar to the um, Garner case, where basically a woman is running across a frozen river to get her children to freedom. Uh, she does not kill her children, only the real case. Um, what most people know it from, actually, though, is that it gets turned into a stage play. It gets turned into a stage play that basically that's where most people, that's where most Americans see it and they know of it is from the stage play, basically talking about how awful slavery is. Um, it, it really infuriated Southerners. Basically, they said that basically this person who doesn't know us is making a Mickey of us, like basically lying about the way that slavery actually is, talking about the most brutal of the brutal. Uh, they say that she never visited the deep, deep South. Uh, she only visited, visited part of Virginia. Like I said, it was only for an afternoon. Uh, also, the derogatory term Uncle Tom comes from this. Uh, you might have heard the term Uncle Tom, which is a, um, oh, how do I say this? Uh, a black person who is overly conciliatory towards white persons. Um, that comes from the stage productions, where basically sometimes the character of Uncle Tom was viewed as like, oh my gosh, he's... Yeah, over and above in the, the sympathy figure. Not sympathy figure, but just like the Christ-like depiction of them. Now, what really screws us over, 
One of the things that really gets the Civil War going is the Kansas-Nebraska Act. Uh, this is introduced by a guy by the name of Stephen Douglas, senator from Illinois. He introduces a bill in 1854, which hopefully is going to solve the whole issue of slavery in these territories for once and for good. Uh, it's a very complicated bill. It includes a transcontinental railroad, which eh, doesn't, really, doesn't really work. Uh, the real intercontinental railroad comes later. It divides some territory, but the main thing it has is something called popular sovereignty. Popular sovereignty on paper should work, all right? It gets rid of the Missouri Compromise, saying that territories are free or slave, depending on their geography. Uh, popular sovereignty says, basically, that any area, if you go over one more, basically, any area, any territory would be allowed to vote for themselves if they want slavery or not. Sounds democratic, sounds American, it sounds like it should really work. Uh, this does destroy the Whig Party, which does split over slavery, uh, divides the North and South. Uh, remnants of the Whig Party, along with remnants of the Liberty Party and some other remnants, the Free Soil Party, are going to later become the Republican Party, which has their first real election in 1856 for president. They actually win the presidency in 1860. We'll talk about that a little bit later. So the first chance they really get a chance to do this is in the Kansas Territory. All right, because popular sovereignty should work. Uh, Kansas is a territory that is that is growing. It's a very good territory where it comes for uh, for you know, agriculture and corn and all that good stuff. Uh, that should work. What ends up happening though is both the free and slave sides start sending in tons of people into Kansas to like act as voters, and then they start having violence against the other side, and it gets really brutal really quick. Hence the name Bleeding Kansas. Uh, in fact, Ble Bleeding Kansas is where we have our first appearance of John Brown. Uh, John Brown, if you don't know who John Brown is, let me talk about John Brown for just a second. John Brown is the white Nat Turner. That's the best way to describe him. He's a, he's a, he's a religious guy, calls himself a pastor, basically says God told him that I need to go free the slaves. Except he's white. He is white, and he's a radical. Even for abolitionists, he's a super radical because he believes in racial equality. He does believe in racial equality. And he also says we should kill people to get it done. He says, basically, I will kill anybody who supports slavery, even if they don't own slaves themselves. Remember, most people don't own slaves. And actually, a lot of supporters of slavery don't own slaves. They just wouldn't have the idea of being able to have slaves at one day in time. So John Brown and his sons really get their name in Kansas for going around and killing slavery supporters. In fact, that's where he really gets first known. John Brown, if you see pictures of him, he's got a big grizzled beard, kind of looks like a wild man, mountain man type of individual. He's going to come back. Don't, don't worry about him. Uh, Bleeding Kansas is a really bad look. It's very violent, very bloody. And in response to all this, uh, you have the caning of Brooks and Sumner. Uh, Sumner is a politician from Massachusetts. He's a senator. Uh, basically, in 1860, he denounces crimes against Kansas. He gives a speech in the Senate where he talks bad about everything going on in Kansas, how the, you know, the slavery supporters are the ones who, behind all the violence. It's actually really both sides getting it. But especially, um, you know, he really just goes on about how the people who support slavery are causing violence in Kansas. And in particular, he starts talking about one South Carolinian senator, Andrew Butler. Okay, South Carolina probably the state that was the most ingrained with their support of slavery, has a majority slave population. Um, Calhoun, who had been vice president under Andrew Jackson, who told South Carolina to secede from the Union or not follow federal laws. Like, South Carolina was a very proud, very defiant... Look, everybody knew if there was going to be a civil war, if any state was going to leave the Union, it was going to be South Carolina. And pretty much, Sumner just goes off on him. He goes off on Butler. He basically says that Butler has a mistress named Slavery. He uses Slavery uh, as a mistress, as an analogy. Basically saying that, like, you know, even though she's foul, he thinks she looks fair and he's in bed with her type of thing. He's talking about the institution of Slavery, but he's talking about Butler's sex life. And also, Butler, a slaveholder, probably had sexual relations with his slaves. Uh, 
it was not viewed as gentlemanly, shall we say. Sumner, he's a, he's a crass Yankee. He's not a refined Southern gentleman type of thing. And so Sumner, he's a senator. He just goes off on him. Now, Butler, you know, he's, he's embarrassed by this, but Butler has a cousin by the name of Preston Brooks, who's now a congressman, House of Representatives. And in this time period, senators are on a different level than members of the House. Uh, the Senate was supposed to be a more august body, a much more refined body. You know, it's, it's not done for great humors and tempers. And the House of Representatives was viewed as a lesser body. They were kind of the little brothers, and they were not on the same social status. Now, if you take my Southern history class, I go all into dueling culture. Eh, ask me about it sometime about dueling culture. But if you think somebody is an equal with you, if, if somebody has insulted you or your family and you think they're equal, you have a duel with them. But if you think that they are less than you, you don't duel them, you beat them. And that's what Preston Brooks does. Preston Brooks, he's a young guy, he's a uh, veteran of the Mexican War, kind of young with this all going on. He feels that his family's honor has been besmirched and that Sumner is not his equal because he's talked so much about sex, he's, he's filthy, he's dirty, he's not an equal. And basically... Here's what happens. This is straight up what happens. Uh, Brooks goes to the floor of the Senate, which, by the way, that in of itself was seen as a kind of a no-no, a breach of etiquette, because Senate was a more refined body, and also the members of... You're, maybe you saw this during the impeachment stuff, but like you have to theoretically be invited, quote-unquote, to go to the floor of the other chamber. It's a lot of ritual, but yeah, that sort of thing. So Brooks comes, says basically, hey, um, Charles Sumner, you've insulted my family, you've insulted the South, you've dishonored me, uh, I cannot let this insult go unpunished. He takes out a cane and beats him. Brooks takes out a cane and beats Humner unconscious. Like, he could have died very easily. Sumner has brain damage. It takes him years for him to cover. He always has neurological damage after this. This is the floor of the U.S. Senate being turned into a street fight. Uh, this is probably the last time that violence happens on the floor of the Senate until a couple weeks ago uh, with the riot. And he, he is actually hailed as a um, hero of the South. You know, finally Brooks is stopped before he kills Sumner. And he's hailed as a hero for the South. Like, basically, he goes on a... Uh, he actually breaks his cane, beating it over the head of, of Sumner. Um, he goes on a speaking tour of the South. Everybody gives him, like, replacement canes. Like, oh, you're defending the South's honor, that sort of thing. Um, you do have an election also in 1856. The Republican Party, which has just formed, um, as a specifically anti-slave party, which has members of the Liberty Party, the Free Soil Party, remnants of the Northern Whigs, uh, nominates somebody, but they get no Southern support because they are explicitly against slavery. That's going to change, don't worry. But then there's a case that goes to the Supreme Court. Another domino falls. The Dred Scott case. You see, Dred Scott is one of these slaves. Dred Scott is a slave. He's a very old slave in this time period. Well, not old for today's standards. He's in his late 50s, early 60s. He feels like he's about to die. And uh, basically, he's, he's like, look, I want to make sure that my kids are free. He wants to make sure his kids are free. And he's a slave of a doctor. He's a slave of a doctor for the U.S. Army who's worked in various places across the U.S. And he went into free territory with his doctor master. Uh, they went into, I believe it was the Wisconsin, it was either Wisconsin or Minnesota, one of the two. I want to say it was the Wisconsin Territory, which according to Somerset versus Stewart, which is an old British law, which formed the basis of American case law, he should have been freed. He should have been freed. You, you know, you, you went into this free territory, a territory where they say no slavery is allowed. If you get on the soil of this place, there is no slavery. And basically, uh, he went back over there and, and like I said, uh, Dred Scott's master had died by this point. Scott is fairly old himself. He, he's like, hey, you know, am I a free person? I believe I'm free. This goes to the courts. Okay, so it goes to the court. Uh, he, he wins some, he loses some. It gets all the way to the Supreme Court. It gets all the way to the Supreme Court, where the chief justice is a guy by the name of Roger Taney. Roger Taney is a slavery advocate. He actually owns slaves himself. And this case is very important because it's finally, the Supreme Court is finally going to rule in about what's bigger, what's more important, individual rights or property rights. So there's two real questions here. There's two questions for the Supreme Court. Number one, 
can Dred Scott sue somebody in the Supreme Court? You know, can he sue in federal court? Does he have the status to sue somebody? That's it's that's the question for an enslaved person. You know, does a slave who may or may not be considered a citizen um, basically can a non-citizen sue in federal court? The second question is: Does taking a slave to a place where bondage is not permitted does that free the slave? All right. So two questions here: Can Dred Scott sue? And number two: Can he be considered free? The answer to both questions is no. Uh, the, the question, the answer to both questions is no. Uh, Roger Taney, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, says that black people are not citizens. He says black people are not citizens uh, because they are inferior. He said black people, even if they're not slaves, are not citizens of the United States because they are so inferior to white people. He pretty much straight up says, I mean, look, I'm going to say a two-word phrase that might trigger some people, but he's like, white supremacy is the law of the land. If you're implying that blacks are inferior to white people, you're also implying that white people are superior to black people, white superior, white superiority, white superiority, white supremacy. And then, even if 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 Dred Scott did have the standing to sue in court, which Taney says he doesn't, uh, property rights trump rights of everything else. So he explicitly says something that had been hinted before. Basically, he says that black people have no rights that white people are supposed to respect. Uh, he uh, also says that the Murray, Missouri Compromise is co- unconstitutional. It, do, it doesn't matter where people are. They, they Basically, property rights take precedent over everything else. Um, this decision really doesn't help anybody. You can see one more picture of Dred Scott. Uh, basically, him and his wife, they're, they're viewed as like middle-class people. And the main issue is his daughters. Uh, Scott dies shortly thereafter the case. Um, yeah, it's very divided after the case. Uh, Dred Scott doesn't live very long. It's mainly about his daughters. He wants to make sure that his kids are going to be free. Uh, the, this upsets everybody. <laughs> Nobody's happy about this. Uh, some white Southerners are, are, are delighted with Taney's decision. Others are not. Uh, they're like, you know, this, this has some bad juju here. Uh, the idea that property rights trump everything else means that basically uh, people who are rich will forever be rich. Nothing had ever happened to them. It seems to be implementing a elite in society. Uh, black folks don't like it at all. <laughs> uh, black folks, free and slave, say basically, wow, the federal government is explicitly not cool with black people. Uh, the fact that the Supreme Court, which, by the way, Supreme Court is crazy hard to overturn. Uh, the Supreme Court is just saying, hey, black people don't have rights and black people aren't citizens because they're inferior. Uh, Frederick Douglass actually believes that this is going to help destroy slavery because it becomes very clear that something has to change and something major. Now, Northern... White Northerners and Black Americans, it's a very interesting dynamic because um, even though they don't support slavery, most Northerners are mistrustful and have prejudices against Black people. Um, More Black rights start getting taken away in the North. Um, Black rights don't really get taken away in the South because they don't really have rights to be taken away. But as you can see, there's a lot of states that really start banning Black people. Blanning? Blanning. I guess what do you... Blanning. (laughs) Banning black people. Like, Ohio, Illinois, Indiana, they say they're explicitly for white people. They start banning black people free or slave in the 1850s. Uh, Indiana does it. Iowa does that. Uh, Ohio had always been a state that didn't allow black people whatsoever. Uh, And foreigners even, which is kind of interesting. Foreigners even, like people who aren't from America, say that, you know what, weirdly enough, the areas without slavery tend to have more racism. Uh, basically, they say there's more outright hatred and violence against black people in areas that don't have slavery, which is a weird and complex dynamic and something we'll be remarking about uh, for the rest of the class. Uh, for instance, when we get into segregation and Jim Crow, um, even to this day, some of the most segregated areas of the entire country are northern cities. And even though they don't have like de facto, even though they don't have um, segregation by law, they have de facto segregation, segregation by practice. Now, another domino that falls is the Lincoln-Douglas debates. Uh, this is the become senator of the state of Illinois, which is a free state. 
Uh, the two debate a bunch. I mean, it's probably something you've heard about. Um, Lincoln is the new guy from the Republican Party. Uh, Frederick Douglass defends the Dred Scott decision. He, he's the guy behind popular sovereignty. He wants it. And he's like, look, slave owners can take slaves wherever they please. You know, you should not be afraid of having one's property taken away from you just because you go to an interesting area, a different area. Uh, Lincoln is an interesting case because he does not like slavery, but he really doesn't like the idea of dis- disunion. Uh, Douglas also theoretically does not like breaking the union apart, but Lincoln's like, look, if we're going to start splitting, we're going to be screwed. Lincoln has a very, very complex relationship with African-Americans. Um, it's very hard to say that Abraham Lincoln was 100% good for African-Americans in the sense that he didn't always have their best interests in heart. Uh, Lincoln was an individual. Lincoln was a person. His views changed. That's one thing you need to learn about people is that people can change. Lincoln's a primo example. But Lincoln of this time, like the 1858 Lincoln-Douglas debates, Lincoln does not believe in equality between the races. Okay, I will repeat that again because that might be hard to reconcile with like the image of Lincoln that's been built up over the years. Before he's president, before the Civil War, Lincoln is adamant. He does not believe that black and white people are equal. A lot of Democrats think that basically, you know, Republicans are trying to favor black people over white people. Lincoln, at this time period, he's straight up saying that is not the case. He says, just because I don't want black people to be enslaved doesn't mean I want them living next to me. Uh, He says he doesn't want to marry a black woman. That's another accusation that comes up quite a bit, that he has a black mistress. He doesn't. Um, You know, he is a primo example in this time period. Lincoln is going to change his, his attitudes over the course of the Civil War. I'm not saying that Lincoln was always racist. But in this time period, Lincoln is not cool with equality between black and white people. He doesn't want slavery. He thinks slavery is bad, but he's like, maybe, and he doesn't think black people should be in the U.S., period. He doesn't think they should become citizens. He thinks maybe they should be removed to, I don't know, Mexico or somewhere else, somewhere else. And now we get to, like, the real thing that really makes everything go cattywampus crazy, the final big two dominoes. First is John Bowne's raid. Uh, John Brown, John Brown was the crazy radical guy who started killing people in Kansas. He fleed prosecution. He starts saying, you know what? I want to invade the South and get rid of slavery. Um, Very religious. He has white followers, but he wants more black help. You know, he's like, look, I want want all the races to come together. He wants to get an armed slaves. And it's going to be different because he's a white man. Uh, You know, Nat Turner, DeLons, all of them, um, DeMarc Vesey, they're all black men. But he's a white man, which allows him a greater level of privilege in the U.S. during this time period. And he's going to any abolition group that could hear him, all right? Any abolition group that could hear him, any black abolitionists, people like Harriet Tubman or Frederick Douglass, all the black leaders are like, yo, you're crazy. We don't want to help you. Uh, Pretty much all of them thought you're going to, like, have backlash against us. Like, whenever you get caught, we're the ones who are going to get killed. Like, yes, you claim you're doing all this stuff for black people, but if something bad happens, we're the ones who are going to get punished more, so you're a crazy person. And he also, you know, you're you're very defiant. I, I don't want to use the term crazy, but um, Frederick Douglass later said, like, I thought the guy was nuts. Like, he, he's a crazy person. Uh, he does get some black help. It's not a very big number. Uh, that's one thing John Brown is... Uh, kind of reticent about is the fact that, you know, he he claims to speak for black people, but he was never able to attract that many black people to his cause. He does get support, though, from various white abolitionists, secretly, I should mention, uh, who's uh, the secret six, they call themselves. Uh, They're six very prominent white abolitionists who give him money and support, but they don't want their names anywhere. They might support him, but they think that John Brown is the radical of radical. So John Brown's plan is basically, hey, I want to arm white people, uh, sorry, black people. I want to arm slaves. Basically, if we give them guns, we can get rid of slavery. We'll get rid of slavery by force. And the place that he feels has a lot of guns is a federal armory. That's right. He wants to go to where the federal government keeps its guns in Harper's Ferry, Virginia. And so basically, he is going to go to where the federal government keeps its guns steal the guns, attract black support from various slaves, and then he would lead an armed insurrection against all the slaveholders. 
Now, the raid itself is a real cluster fudge. And you know I don't mean the word fudge. But it is it has no real chance of succeeding. Uh, the first person killed is, ironically, a free, free black person who worked at the, at, the, um, at the Federal Armory there, at the depot. Um, it's just an utter failure on every measure. Like, it has no chance of succeeding. Uh, John Brown is all passion and energy, but not a lot of planning, I suppose. However, John Brown is able to get some hostages. He does get some hostages. He actually does attract a couple slaves, only 150, which sounds like a big number, but it's really not, considering uh, the population of everything. Uh, the U.S. Marines are sent in. Uh, the Marines are sent in, led by Robert E. Lee. That's right, that Robert E. Lee. Uh, Robert E. Lee is sent in to basically protect the U.S. government. Ironic, because he's about to not protect the U.S. government. And uh, John Brown is captured, and he is tried for treason. If you go over one side, you're going to see uh, him, you know, uh, trying to be in the armory. Um, he is tried for treason. Uh, this is a fairly open and shut case. Um, he is executed. He and some of his sons and some of his followers are executed. And it just showed how deep violence was and just how bad things were going to get. It was almost a preview of what the Civil War was going to be because now you have white people trying to go to Nat Turner. All right, white people are going to try to go all Nat Turner. And here's the thing: after Nat Turner, after the free of all the fear of all the slave insurrections, they really cracked down on black people meeting together. They cracked down on black people meeting together, free or slave, whatever. But look, it's it's going to sound racist because it's America in this time period. But there was no way that they there were just too many white people in too much positions of power. You can't prohibit white people from meeting together in the really racist United States during this time period. There's no way to stop them from meeting. And also, this doesn't help Southern fears because they're like, oh my gosh, now the crazy white abolitionists are going to try to kill us. And even though the federal government helped us, it's not a long time thing. Their reaction to all this, the opinion is split. Uh, John Brown was called crazy, but he weirdly seems pretty calm in the face of death. Uh, he pretty much says like, look, I'm going to be the first bloodshed. There's going to be a lot more bloodshed before everybody's free, but I'm definitely the first. Um, he becomes viewed as a martyr very quickly. Uh, basically, the North and Northern abolitionists say that he is a martyr because he is, he is killed for his religious beliefs of not wanting to have slavery. Uh, the South is aghast. The South is like, how the hell is that guy a, a martyr? And actually, the reaction of all this is one of the things that brings secession closer. Talk of seceding is increasing, which is ironically what Brown wanted. Brown wanted the North to split away from the South. Ironically, the South is going to be the one to split against the North. But the final domino, the final domino that really causes all this to fall apart is the election of Abraham Lincoln in 1860. In 1860, you have four presidents running for president. You have four presidents running, four presidents running for president. You have um, four people running for president for four different parties. You don't need to know all of them. John Bell, Stephen Douglas, Dick Rich. The main one you want to know is Abraham Lincoln. Uh, Abraham Lincoln, it, look, it's looking like it's going to be a very, very uh, split election. It's going to be a very messed up election. It's one of those years where everybody's really mad at too many people. And you have four major candidates running. They knew there's going to be a split vote. And they knew it's not going to be very nice. Um, Lincoln was seen as openly hostile to the South. We're going to talk about that more when we get to the Civil War. But Lincoln in the South is viewed as somebody openly against slavery, somebody who's openly against the South being you know, unique or having the ability to do what it wants. And he does not appear on the ballot in most of the South. In fact, most of the South, Lincoln's name does not appear on the ballot. And Lincoln wins. If you look at the Electoral College map, Lincoln wins. Uh, Lincoln gets those kind of free states. He gets the states in the North. Uh, if you look at the election map, uh, the Southerners, the Southern Democrats, get John Breckinridge. Uh, the Northern Democrats, led by Stephen Douglas, they only get one, sta uh, one state, Missouri. He doesn't even get his home state. Uh, John Bell from the Constitution Union Party, that's just another Union Party, gets some of the border states. But Lincoln gets pretty much all the votes in the North. Pretty much all the Northern votes uh, go to Lincoln. And this is seen as the last straw. All right. Southerners believe that Lincoln is going to cause war with the South and use violence to get rid of slavery. They think Lincoln is going to do what John Brown did on a much larger number, use violence to get rid of slavery. And they vow to leave first before Lincoln sends violence against them. 
So there's already talk of secession. It's going to happen. They know it's going to happen. It's probably going to happen with South Carolina. Uh, black people responding to this. Uh, black people are not that enthusiastic. Nobody's crazy about Lincoln. He's viewed as too much of a politician. Uh, they thought he was going to be more willing to compromise than anything else. Uh, however, you know, some abolitionists also fear Lincoln is too tolerant of various slaveholder interests. Lincoln's also stating that African Americans are inferior. However, once there's talk of secession, they think, you know what, secession's okay because it's going to get slavery out of the country. Um, either we have a civil war and we beat the people who want slavery, or we let them leave and slavery's out of the country and the United States can be cool and wonderful and fine and dandy. So in, 18, in late 1860, before Lincoln's even inaugurated, surprising absolutely nobody, South Carolina secedes from the Union. Uh, South Carolina, the state everybody thought was going to secede from the Union, even before Lincoln gets inaugurated. Even before Lincoln is put into office, South Carolina's like, you know what? We're leaving first. It's like, I'm not going to break up with you. <laughs> You're not going to break up with me. I'm breaking up with you. That's pretty much what happens there. Uh, Lincoln responds to this by claiming that he's not against slavery. Uh, he, you know, he just wants to stop it spread. Uh, him saying that freaks out the rest of the South. And by February, seven Deep South states have seceded. Like I said, Lincoln, you know, is is really trying to calm it down. He says, look, I want to enforce the Constitution. I'm not going to interfere with slavery where it existed. But his main thing is I want to keep the Union together. Uh, they want to keep the Union together. That's, that's what Lincoln wants more than anything else. And the South doesn't want it. And South Carolina demands that the Union gives up a federal arsenal at Fort Sumner. Uh, the Union says no. And the Civil War begins. But we're going to talk about that next class. Thing I do want you to realize, though, is that even minor events, but also major events between 1846 and 1861, involve slavery. Everything we talked about involves slavery in some form or fashion, and it makes a very increasingly polarized America. Uh, without the agitation over slavery in the territories, there'd be no succession and no civil war. There is no doubt that the civil war is all about slavery. I mean, hopefully you've seen this, this the talk about slavery, and also, frankly, not liking black people. is behind everything when it talks about the territories and ultimately what happens with slavery. And with that, I know we had a lot of stuff this week, but eh, you just need to know about this. And I promise next week's going to be a little bit lesser because I don't like talking about the Civil War too much, but we're going to talk about it some. So for that, Dr. Tully, History 311. You have a good one.